You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Margaret Swift Thompson, family addiction specialist of over 20 years. She is the Embrace Family Recovery Coach, founder and host of Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Margaret works with family members to develop healthier strategies to cope with the storm created by the disease of addiction within you and around you. The serenity prayer calls us forth to change the one you can and know that one is you. Margaret shows you how to leverage your power and skills to utilize your best strategies for your recovery. Her mantra is take care of you. Let's explore with Margaret the stories, experiences, struggles and victories of people who love someone with the disease. Margaret, great to have you here today. I would really appreciate you sharing your journey into this space. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's great to be with you. Interesting story, let's put it that way. I've been very diverse. I covered a lot of topics in my early years of my profession. And to your point of covering topics that are not often talked about, I seem to dive headfirst into those topics through my career. Born and raised in Bermuda, headed off to university, didn't know what I was going to do, and landed in the world of the helping professions. Soon learned I didn't want to be a nurse, couldn't do that, and went into counseling, therapy, that type of work. And upon my return to Bermuda, if you remember, the HIV AIDS epidemic was a huge component of our social world. And Bermuda's rates were extremely high. And so I decided to push the envelope in a conservative world and start talking about subjects that were challenging to talk about in an environment where we know mixed messages, keeping things undercover was important. I don't mean that, that they were dishonest about the rates. I just mean that we were at a cultural point where people didn't want to talk about something so tantalizing. And yet it was relatable to people's lives. Long story short, came home to Bermuda and got known as the sex lady in our fair country because I was able to get into most schools and many churches and start talking about a difficult, controversial subject to try to protect and prevent the spread that was so rampant at the time. Anyway, we pivot from there into doing that along with prevention and work and outreach within domestic violence, sexual assault first at the Women's Resource Center, and then Pride Bermuda, where I got the opportunity to teach parents and train parents on prevention of youth in their youth, which was a great job, a fabulous career move, and really diversified who I was and what I did. Along with that in tandem, I was asked to host the Bermuda Youth Talk television show, which was scary for me. Full disclosure, I've someone who struggled with food addiction through my life at that point would have never labeled it that, wouldn't have even called it that. So I was very scared to be in the public light, to go through a career change where you were in front of everybody and what do we do with people on television, but tear them apart and wonder why they're there. So I did it because along with that fear was a philosophy in my family of pull your bootstraps up, get on with business, you get an opportunity, you make the most of it. And I did. And I actually really enjoyed it, despite my fear. 
and lack of experience doing it, and mainly focused on giving young people who I found so inspiring and what they were doing and how they were growing a platform to share all the good news about what they were doing. At that point in my life, I was in a relationship unbeknownst to me with someone who had an addiction that was on the down low. That was their word. They called it a compulsion. I'm not labeling it for them. And it got really public and really uncomfortable. And as a result, the relationship ended. I kind of fell apart, Michelle, if I were to be fully honest. I was really good at wearing a mask of I'm okay, but I wasn't okay. And so I did what many people do, a great geographical escape, ran from Bermuda as fast as I could and went to Center City, Minnesota to Hazelden Betty Ford. Bermuda to Minnesota in August of that year, knowing what was coming around the corner, I did not know. And I landed at Hazelden Betty Ford where I was in a year training program postgraduate school to get certified as an addictions counselor. And I need to say off the bat, when you talk to me as a young professional starting in the helping profession, addiction was not going to be in my repertoire. And surprise surprise how the universe aligns with what you need. And I was given this incredible privilege and opportunity to train under some of the most fantastic people working in the field of addiction and have never left. It is definitely one of my passions. I have a few. And the reality is I find people who suffer with the disease of addiction and their family members who are definitely my sweet spot, the family side of the illness, to be some of the most compassionate, resilient, underserved for care and support and stigmatize of this population. I did a family genogram back in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was so shocked. Women in my family married alcoholics and then all the things that come along with that were their experience. And I'm the mother of two daughters and I have a granddaughter. But I can tell you when I looked at my daughters, I was like, it stops here. I need to change that legacy. And I also want to just pop in. I remember what you were doing in the 80s and 90s. Someone close to me died of AIDS and there was all the, the secrets. Don't talk, don't tell, which is very, very much a way it can be in different generations and sort of in different cultures. And that was a struggle for me. You were not able to take the lessons and the blessings and work out what to do next. That You were busy dealing with the shame and the shutdown, which is really, really difficult. And I remember your courage going on TV. I think it might have been around the time when I got invited as a very busy local lawyer to be in a show at City Hall called Fat Girls. That was phenomenally hot, <laughs> phenomenally hot and together. And it was actually a story around obesity. And I had been invited in to talk to them about fundraising and ended up with a part in a black theater company. I don't memorize things, so I actually stuck my whole script in a giant crossword puzzle book and just about gave the director a breakdown. But it was so, so well received. It ended up being a three-part series. But sometimes society calls you to step up and be part of it. My three teenagers at the time were like, you are so embarrassing. You know, and I was being sort of told by the lawyers, you don't mean to do that. And I'm like, if they can go to the fancy theater and act, I can go on stage with the Black Company around issues that were very prevalent for women, which were infidelity and also obesity. I got called to turn up and like yourself, I showed up and got a chance to do a little bit of healing in terms of being a white woman and in a Black face. So I want to also honor the work that you've done and showing up in some of these really taboo, tough spots. And now creating your work around that. I really appreciate you, Margaret. 
Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. I have to say the reality for me that I've come to appreciate as I've gained a little experience and wisdom, because I was really out of the gate, just go for it. You don't want me here. I'll show you I need to be here. Kind of an attitude. And I look back on that and sort of cringe and think about some of the people I came across with way more wisdom and experience than me that I didn't heed. But one of the players along the path was Alan Vincent Smith, who the foundation was created over. And I had the privilege of working as a volunteer at a gap house at the same time. And he was there. And he sat me down and said to me, you're going to do something with whatever I tell you. So I want you to ask me anything you want to know about AIDS, about Bermuda and AIDS, and I believe it's going to make a difference. And it was a pivotal moment. The man was so forthright, generous, open in wanting to pass on to the future generations something different than what he'd experienced. And so he was a pivotal part of the spirit within me to give back. And I've had many people do that. I mean, even in the addiction world, my mentors along the way who've since passed, and I'm considered an elder in the field now, which is just shocking to me. I could not have got to where I am in working with passionately people who have this illness and their family members without the gifts and the willingness to share their experience, strength, and hope with me. And so I just hope to pass that on. This illness is still one of the most stigmatized illnesses we live in. Despite it being diagnosed as a disease and progressive, chronic, and potentially fatal, as we see many people losing their lives to it, we don't do well enough at putting faces to recovery and destigmatizing the illness as an illness. So anything I can do to make that continue to heal and improve, it's my responsibility for who gave it to me. Bless you. I'm a child of an alcoholic, ex-wife of an alcoholic. Who knows who else is dealing with addictions in my family? I only can lead by example and encouragement. But you're exactly right in terms of the families. The families get affected, but also given my audience as global leaders, they're in a very isolated spot. So if they've got a spouse or a child, they're not necessarily feeling safe enough to deal with that stuff. And more importantly, I'm not sure that organizations bring their best self to the topic of addiction in terms of addressing what needs to be addressed. So this is why I'm underwriting this series for my podcast and inviting trailblazers like yourself, who's unexpectedly now leading, <laughs> pioneering the way forward. But I'm certain it's certainly one of the missions of this podcast is to raise awareness around the person who is dealing with the addiction. Also, the recognition, I think the statistics last century I heard were like it affects at least minimum of four people. But when you get into organizations, I'm like, mm -hmm. it's not always going to work to say, go to this outside agency, because if it's a senior person, they haven't had the chance to build trust. They're already under high performance goals and it might be their way of coping. So this is a long-term project. We take the best of them. How do we invest back into them? Yeah. So another chapter in my career was EAP work and the collateral damage, as I call it, of this no-fault disease absolutely affects more than four people per person with them. If we think about just the family, you have the direct family, then the extended family. You then go out to if they're a professional or in any career, the ripple effect within that organization of performance issues, sick leave, what resources they can get, the climate within the country that enables and supports versus offers help in a healthy way. One of the other gifts of working at Hazel and Betty Ford, as long as I did, I worked with people from all walks of life, from the very top of the society, all the way down the chain, from people who were released from prison and ended up in jail and ended up in our facility. Some of the people who came from the corporate offices were the most ill. 
in my opinion, the reason that came to be was when you have someone in a high position, their disease is incredibly manipulative and masterful in creating a web of people who will enable and cover what's going on because they're in a position of one down. You can't really confront the person who's in charge of you. You can't really be honest with them for fear of repercussion in your career. So it has to come from either a parallel person or an upper management person to be the one to intervene along with loved ones to say, hey, we're seeing this, 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 and this. We're concerned for your well-being. We value you and the skills you bring to our company. What can we do to support you? It takes a person recognizing some of the moral judgment we put on the illness. And it also takes a person a willingness to get past their own bias. Come on now, clean it up, get done. What's wrong with you? It's just a matter of putting it down. It's not that hard. Don't take it. If that were the case, Michelle, treatments wouldn't need to be here. People like myself wouldn't need to have this career. And I've always said, if love were enough to cure this illness, I would gladly give up my career and find a new one. True enough. True enough. And the disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, as they say in 12-step programs. It is very challenging. And I know it outfoxed me as a member of a family with an active alcoholic. It could be alcohol. It could be gaming. It could be sex. It could be shopping. This disease just picks your Achilles heel and goes with it. I know for me, for many years, particularly with a functional person, you don't Mm -hmm. pick it up because you're enabling and supporting. So there are so many programs out there to help families. Like I'm a multi-winner. I do Al-Anon and child of an alcoholic and certainly had some years and OA is Overeaters Anonymous because the effect of the disease on me was I stopped eating. Mm -hmm. And logically, and I sometimes still struggle with this, stopping eating, working 60, 80, 100 hour work weeks makes you fat. It's not because you're a couch potato eating potato chips. The disease and trying to cope with the mega stress of it. For me, when I'm in a place of dis-ease, I don't eat. And that was um, thanks to another healing facility. I went to Karen and I did 10 years of therapy in a week and blew my mind when they said, go to a 12-step program to deal with your eating issues. They're like, you are under eating. This is an experience of a disease that it can turn into a disease, right? So I got myself on the recovery journey with that one. I've had the opportunities to step through and maintain attendance and at least one or two 12-step programs to support my recovery because as a serenity prayer, the only person you can change is you. And as I tell my adult children, the only thing you can change about another person is their diapers and the youngest grandchild is out of diapers. So keep your side of the street clean. I think that that speaks to also, I'm assuming that you and I went to a similar program with Karen which I remember going through at the point where my relationship combusted, which I ate my way through that week program. I stuffed every feeling I could by eating my way through that program. And that was my MO that I was clearly unwilling to look at and face until I had time in Al-Anon to heal and gain. And then realizing that there was another aspect to my story that I had never been willing to acknowledge. And I have to say, as a professional in the field of working with people with the disease of addiction, though their addiction that I was working with at the time was a chemical one. It's a very painful, dishonoring, dishonest place to be when I'm caring for them, working with them while absolutely active in my own addiction, 
doing the same things they did with opiates, but I'm doing it with food. And so that pain got to be too much. And I found myself in a 12-step meeting addressing the real primary illness that I had always lived with since probably around seven through nine years old. And so again, another gratitude I have for the trajectory of my life that was beyond my control, because had that relationship not combusted, had all the truths not come out, I would have probably, no, I know I would have never moved into working with people with this disease. And so even though it was a horrible time in my life, the pain was really awful. The work that I've done and been gifted through my own recovery and being willing to be vulnerable and stop pretending has given me a life beyond what I hoped I could have. And that I'm really, really grateful for. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it can sometimes take a while to get there. Last century, I went into Al-Anon to fix the other person. I left because Al-Anon clearly didn't work. <laughs> this century, I went in to take care of me. And Al-Anon led me into adult children's of alcoholics. And I was totally amazed, Margaret, to learn about the internal chemical addictions of cortisol, adrenaline, just to name a couple. And growing up in a very challenging household as a teenager. I was off racing cars at 15 on a professional racetrack. When I was in those spaces, I was calm. I went to school to eat my lunch, you know. <laughs> you know, we have these strategies and it's not until many decades later, I'm sitting in an adult children's meeting going internal chemicals. Uh-oh, now this is a whole other layer to have well, a look I think that what you speak of is the way that I interpret that is we as family members do not get into our own recovery until the things that we have strategized and learned and adapted to are no longer working for us. Just like the person with the addiction. The person with the addiction usually does not surrender to help until some consequence hurts them bad enough that they're going, I can't keep doing this. I need this help. I am wanting something different. The family's the same. Many family members don't realize the parallel process of this disease, that they have the same symptoms and adaptive behaviors and struggles that the person with the chemical dependency has. I don't think any high from food has ever come close to the high I felt when I fixed someone in my life's problem and ran the show. That was very hard to give up. Oh, confession here. In my first fourth step, I had to make amends to God because I realized I'd been playing God and I did a pretty good job. But it wasn't until I realized I didn't have to do it that I got some relief and said, oh, let me give that back. And then my sponsor says, yeah, and you can write a letter to make amends for that. And I'm like, I did not realize that my playing God or enabling or being codependent could keep someone from their recovery because I'm constantly putting a Band-Aid or a support place for the disease to still be running the show. The second one was a means to myself, which was well and truly in order because I had ran myself ragged. I think it can be such a challenge when you're in the midst of life, when you're in your 20s and 30s and you're studying and your 30s and 40s and 50s and you're raising kids and your professions don't give you a lot of quarter for being a human being. It's all about the doing. I think there is a lot of gratitude for me for the pandemic pause last year, but also huge gratitude for people with addiction who've crossed my path because there were so many blessings that came out of that because as you rightly pointed out the pain was so huge I had to stop and say what am I accountable for here and what do I need to do about this so that I can have serenity in my life which has now become extremely important to me. 
Well, to that point, when we get into recovery as someone with an addiction, we have to take the focus off of the drug of no choice. When we get into recovery as family members, we have to take the focus off the person, which is our drug of no choice. And that's not an easy task when your whole MO in life has been other focused, managing, fixing, controlling, manipulating, making things happen for other people out of love always. And I need to say that I do not believe family members do this with any malintent whatsoever. I am desperate. I am watching someone's pain and illness take them from me and I'm going to dive in and do whatever I have to to stop it, not knowing that doesn't work. Such a challenge to share from my own life, watching someone with their drug of no choice. It's like watching a slow suicide in motion and you cannot get through the security screen to stop it. And when I surrendered to that, that was only one part. Realized my life was unmanageable. The second part, there was nothing I could do but take care of myself. And as you rightly pointed out, that was not something I was trained to do. For my family, I was a little mother to my mother and my brother and other things. So I was trained to take care of people and being an empath, I also could feel pain. So I would do anything for them not to feel the levels of pain. But it kind of had a full stop because at some point those places of dissidence are going to have an impact and they won't be in the decade they're happening necessarily. They might happen to you 20 years later when you come to a crashing halt and wonder why certain illnesses are present in your life or certain consequences are present in your life and you were not the one drinking and drugging. Well, now right. I pay a lot of attention to how whether I trigger internal brain chemicals like adrenaline. But, you know, I now am very mindful that if I'm okay, then my family will be okay on Anything that I could have done for them, let them work out their own path to recovery. It's the biggest gift we give the people we love is to honor them with the dignity of their own path. And yet the hardest thing to do, because as you said earlier, many family members fall into the role of assuming they know best. And it's all fear-based. It's all love-based. The disease eats that up and uses it against the person who has it. I love the acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. That's definitely one I've kept on my dashboard to make sure I do check in. And if it does look that way, then hand it over. My higher power is in charge of all that. So Margaret, you're in the business. Share some Mm -hmm. tools and strategies for this cunning, baffling, powerful area of life. My business is Embrace Family Recovery, and it is absolutely focused on the family members. When I look at the paradigm of the illness, there are more resources for the person with the disease, many more than there are for the family members. One, I don't think family members truly get that they need them and deserve them. And secondly, the focus being on the person with the illness supersedes innate need to take care of ourselves. So that's the first piece. It's an education into this disease being a parallel process that the family member mirrors what they're seeing in their loved one in very specific and similar ways, from denial to rationalization to increased tolerance of bad behavior or for the addict, increased tolerance of use and needing more to get that high. I think that that's a huge strategy is A, educating oneself, understanding the illness and learning to find the words around triggers. What are my triggers as a family member? And what do then I do with those triggers? Many family members will tell me what they perceive their addict's triggers to be, have never looked at their own. And again, going back to the principles of recovery, we can only heal ourselves. So how can I support a person in understanding the things they deserve to do to have a different quality of life themselves? The other thing is working on your own recovery 
gives your person with the illness the best fighting chance to get their own recovery. And people don't understand that. It sounds counterintuitive. It feels counterintuitive. But if I work a program as a spouse, a mom, a daughter, I role model that out loud. I don't tell them what to do, which is my history. I show them what I'm doing. I share what I'm doing. I treat them in a different way because of what I'm doing. That is more appealing and potentially healing for them than me ever telling them what to do. Because as we know, addiction is rebellious at nature. You tell me it's red, I'll tell you it's green and I'll prove it to you. So much better to come at them with our vulnerability, our own recovery, the work we're willing to do to accept that this disease has affected us than tell them ever what to do. Now you have strategies and there's ways people can contact you and I'll have all of that in the show notes, but do you want to speak to the services that you offer? If people are sitting here thinking, I'm the daughter of, and how can I do this? Where would I go and who can I talk to or any groups that are running? I'm a firm believer in coming alongside someone in a coaching capacity where I will help them create the path forward that feels healthiest for them. I'll offer my education, my experience and wisdom. They can do that individually. I'm working with parents of people who have the illness and helping them as a couple strategize, set boundaries, communicate more healthily, those types of things. I absolutely ask all my people who work with me to go through some sort of family program for basic education and to start looking for their support community and building it. I am 150% biased towards abstinence model 12-step recovery. That is my wheelhouse. However, if somebody comes to me and they want to use smart recovery, they go through their church recovery, that is their choice. Knowing that my lens will be 12-step recovery, AA, Al-Anon, Naran on codependence anonymous adult children of alcoholics would be the things that I would absolutely ask people who want to work with me to begin to build that community because alone we will never change successfully in a way that gives us the rewards we deserve thank you margaret i'm just so grateful you're out there because outside of alanon and alatine there really wasn't a whole lot on offer for family members and i think you rightly tapped the nail on the head if you can get them there, getting past the bias, the prejudice, or even the ego and the disease, it's a high, high jump to get there. So any last words as we wrap up? I think that's a really good point you want to end it with. I mean, I think two things to consider when we're about to walk into a meeting. A, the people in the room are there for the same reason we're going. That's a great equalizer. B, has it been working the way I've been doing it? How much pain am I feeling? And do I want someone who understands this innately without me even having to say it to share their experience and how they made it through? Because they might help me figure out how to have peace in my life and some serenity and realize that even if my loved one does not get well, which we obviously want them to, I can start getting well. And that is the gift that I give myself if I engage in recovery, because none of us can predict the outcome for any other person, but we can work towards a different outcome for ourselves. Brilliant. And that captures nicely the intergenerational trauma and that pivotal moment for me where I looked at my daughters and said, am I going to pass it on or am I going to work it out? And to the best of my ability, I have tried my hardest to work it out. And now I look at my wee granddaughter and I am prayerful that we've updated the software in the family. (laughs) And if not, I can only model by example, make the path by walking and be willing to do the work to create the change I want to see. 
Well, and the other beautiful thing you give your granddaughter is a consistency, a stability, and a woman who's willing to be vulnerable and show that if I need help, it's okay to get help. And this is how I did it. That is a huge gift to give the next generation, which a lot of us never came from because it was stoic, stiff upper lip. Don't ever show anyone your vulnerabilities. And so to do different and say, you know what? It's okay to not feel well. It's okay to acknowledge that there are mental health issues and other issues in life that do get in the way of us feeling okay. And there's help out there. So don't rob yourself of that. Absolutely. You can go through it. You can grow through it. And at the end of the day, you could even choose to glow afterwards and maintain your own sobriety. Margaret, thank you so much for all your contributions and wisdom. I really appreciate you. And we will certainly make sure on the show notes that audience will know how to get hold of you and find you. I would love that. And I'd look forward to working with anyone who reaches out. So let's make something work. If it can't be me, I'll definitely. My commitment to everyone who reaches out to me is if it's not me you work with, I will get you resources to help me. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.